Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock today. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. Now, here's our Turo Andrade to officially launch us into the fourth golden age of rock, starting in the magical year of 1991. In the last episode... We covered the year span of 1987 to 1990, which served as a prelude slash bridge period before the floodgates opened for the fourth golden age of rock. Well, those floodgates officially opened in 1991, year zero for the fourth golden age of rock and the focus of this episode. The number of bands that release era-defining all-time classics is staggering. U2, R.E.M., Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, The Red Hot Chili Peppers, Metallica. The number of bands that released singularly innovative and groundbreaking records that still resonate through the decades is also staggering. My Bloody Valentine, Teenage Fan Club, Slint, Primal Scream. One of the most eventful and important years in rock music history is discussed in full detail. Join us as the fourth golden age of rock kicks into full gear. Well now, Arturo, uh, really excited to uh, be back here and uh, we're on the verge of talking about 1991 in uh, the fourth golden age of rock, got to say, uh, this may be the year that I have the most personal and emotional connection uh, to. Mm. Uh, any thoughts before, uh, you know, at, at this point uh, in the episode? Yes, 1991, like I've, I think I've said before, is the year zero of the of of the fourth golden age of rock you know like uh like 1976 was for punk like 1955 was for that early rock and roll you know um like i guess 1964 was for the 60s stuff that followed but before we get into this uh i need to uh, in front of you chris and all our curmudgeonly listeners before we really get started i would like to take some time to correct a major oversight that we committed in the last episode. Now, the last episode, the first installment in our nine-part series about the fourth golden age of rock, which all of you listening out there should have heard by now, uh, covered the major bands, artists, and albums during the years 1987 to 90, which served as bridge-slash-prelude years before the fourth golden age officially started in 1991, which is what this episode will cover. Somehow, among all the bands we discussed, we managed to neglect mentioning Fugazi, which is a terrible mistake. Uh, (laughs) It really is. I mean, we talked about bands like Sonic Youth, The Pixies, and Jane's Addiction, all of whom invented new forms of rock music with little precedent. Fugazi belongs right there with those bands. Yeah, how, uh, how dare we ignore uh, Ian MacKay and the whole DC uh, hardcore thing? I know. I mean, and, and as far as their innovation is concerned, too, uh, they emerged, like you said, from the Washington, D.C. straight-edge hardcore punk scene of the 1980s with each of the four members coming from various bands. 
guitarist, singer Guy Picciotto and drummer Brendan Canty were in the pioneering emo punk band Rites of Spring, whose sole album was covered in this podcast's vault segment last year. Bassist Joe Lally came from the melodic post-hardcore band Dag Nasty. And of course, as you mentioned, singer-guitarist Ian Mackay, the spiritual leader of the whole DC scene, was in the legendary hardcore punk band Minor Threat and is the founder of the equally legendary indie label Discord Records. Now, Fugazi's music has been described as post-hardcore, but that doesn't really do justice to their sound. They've also been called straight-up punk rock, and that's kind of true, but only in the vaguest sense. They took the musical language of punk and deconstructed it and then doused it with funk, dub reggae, dub reggae beats, heavy riffs not too far from Led Zeppelin and Queen, anthemic choruses, and shredding noise attacks inspired by Sonic Youth. Uh, Their coiled, gnarled, naughty, yet intense sound was a huge influence on legions of bands from the mid-1990s onward. And the number of bands who have name-checked them as an influence makes for a very long list. Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Rage Against the Machine, Elliot Smith in his early punk band Heat Miser, late 1990s Blur, At the Drive-In, later breaking off into the Mars Volta, Archers of Loaf, Modest Mouse, Slater Kinney, Jimmy Eat World, Sunny Day Real Estate, Ted Leo and the Pharmacists, McCluskey, The Kills, The Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs, and there are more. Uh, They were as well known for their business practices and socio-political beliefs as their music. It's safe to say that no American band in rock history, and I mean this, no joke, personified the revolutionary spirit and anti-consumerism, anti-commercialism stance of punk rock and lived it more than Fugazi. Um, They were strict, straight-edge vegetarians who self-released their music on their own record label. They managed themselves. They booked their own tours in unconventional venues. They were their own PR agents, and their anti-consumerist beliefs were embodied by their strict refusal to produce and sell any kind of merchandise. Seriously, no merchandise. (laughs) Uh, Most notably, they had a strict adherence to the policy of charging no more than $5 per ticket for all shows, no exceptions. As the British music journalist Everett True once observed about the band, Fugazi had, quote, Fugazi had a mindset that believed that any involvement with the system was corrupting and that you should create completely alternative structures outside of it. Uh, Their 1988 self-titled debut EP is arguably one of the 10 greatest rock EPs ever made, containing their most well-known song, Waiting Room. Their 1990 debut LP, Repeater, is an all-time classic that, among all their albums, is the purest distillation and exemplification of their unique sound and radical social beliefs and politics. They would spend the rest of the 1990s and early noughties releasing a string of consistently superb albums until their hiatus in 2003, which might as well have been a breakup because they haven't gotten back together since. So in case you're listening, Mr. Mackay, Picciotto, Lally, and Canty, the Curmudgeon Rock Report dutifully apologizes for excluding your phenomenal band 
from our episode analyzing the years 1987 to 90 that led to the fourth golden age of rock. Fugazi, if you're listening, your recorded legacy is a huge part of the greatness of this golden age. And that right there, folks, is our most legendary postscript to date. Uh, (laughs) uh, Arturo pretty much captured uh, Fugazi. The only thing I'll add is that nobody did smart, angry with integrity better than Fugazi. I mean, that's kind of what you can call them, smart, angry. Right. We're going to cross over into the other side of the space-time continuum, as we usually do. But we're going to do it a little differently uh, this time. Uh, Yes, uh, we are... Uh, embracing and exploring the parallel universe. But with a twist. uh, Yes, uh, (laughs) yes, with a twist. Uh, Over here, uh, you know, the superstars are the folks that we think they ought to be and ought to be, you know, uh, filling up the stadiums. And not only that, but they're also the bands that should have a a huge and monstrous legacy. Uh, And so uh, we're now going to... Uh, hone in on the Parallel Vault. Uh, Longtime listeners will recognize that we are now merging two concepts and we are going into our, uh, our what would you call it, anti-vault or sort of opposite vault? Well, here's the thing. My Parallel Universe choice actually is a Parallel Universe choice because that album came out this year. But Chris, you are going to lead us into the Parallel Vault, which basically, for those of you who are in the know, it's albums that came out within the last 10 years, okay, that would have been huge in a parallel universe where rock music was still a pop cultural force. <laughs> well, there, well, there you go. Okay, so uh, so that, that unties the knot. Uh, and since you are uh, still grounded in the here and now, and I will be uh, uh, excavating uh, much, much deeper... Uh, get us started. Uh, who are we talking about, uh, or who are you talking about this week? Yes, this is the heavy alternative rock band, the Mysterines, not the Listerines, the Mysterines. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. They are a brand new band from that rock music hotbed of Liverpool, England, the same city that brought us terrific bands such as Echo and the Bunny Men, The Teardrop Explodes, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Dead or Alive, The Laws, The Coral, and some little quartet from the 1960s whose name I forget. Yeah. Uh, Reeling is the Mysterines' debut album, and it's fitting that we're reviewing their album in an episode of the fourth golden age of rock. Why? It's because their sound is deeply seeped in 1990s alternative rock goodness. They combine the bluesy grunge of early PJ Harvey and yes, this is an obscure reference with uh, the sludgy, downtuned rock of 90s Boston band Come, led by the incomparable singer guitarist Talia Zedek. Like the latter band, the Mysterines are also led by a firebrand frontwoman named Leah Metcalf, who, while not quite on the level of a guitar player as Zedek, is a mesmerizing singer whose deep, sonorous voice dominates the album as its true lead instrument. Unlike their influences, they inject their music with radio-friendly, catchy riffs, which helps their case with whatever is left of modern rock radio at this point. Uh, Standout tracks, Life's a Bitch, parentheses, but I like it so much, 
which opens the album with a turbocharged thrust of authentic anger and attitude-ridden hard rock, the likes of which you rarely hear anymore, hence the grunge comparisons. Uh, another track, Old Friends Die Hard, is a swampy, grungy, blues rock shuffle that drips with sexuality and hedonistic thrill. Key lyric, here comes Frankie, nice and sleazy. He's got something up his sleevey. <laughs> uh, uh, you got Dangerous, which is such an early PJ Harvey knockoff that you would think they owe Polly Jean some royalty payments. But then you realize that the rock landscape could use some more people looking up to PJ Harvey for inspiration rather than the tired out old 1980s indie and synth pop tropes. Very, uh, very true. Very, yeah. very true. If this uh, band is a gateway drug to PJ Harvey, we're better off for it. Absolutely. The most surprising and oddly uplifting track on the album is All These Things, which is light shoegazer pop rock that soars with an arena-ready chorus. Uh, Leah Metcalf's lyrics are inconsistent in quality, memorable and striking with depth at times, and a bit sophomoric and full of, ju full of juvenile self-absorption at others. But hey, it's their first album and they're young, so let's hope they grow into something great and not fall into the trap of being a one-and-done band like so many UK bands of the 21st century have been. Chris? Yeah, uh, you I think you hit the nail on the head with the PJ uh, Harvey uh, reference. I think that that stood out to me almost immediately yeah. uh, because of the aesthetic and the fact that you've got a, a front woman uh, unafraid to uh, speak her mind. Uh, I'm going to run this one by you. Um, I hear a lot of Black Rebel Motorcycle Club. Oh, uh, nice. Nice. I, I really, uh, that, that the sort of mid tempo, that's sort of that mid, uh, range between punk and metal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That kind of sort of, uh, that big stomp, I guess you could say in the middle, it's, it's yeah. almost like a, a supple stomp. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think they do have, uh, some of this, uh, more, more trivially, I want to mention this before we move on. Uh, they are signed to fiction records, which is a subsidiary of universal Mi uh, music group. Yes, right. uh, th these guys are a major label act. Uh, Fiction Records is most famous for being the Cures uh, label oh. for 20-something years. And so uh, they haven't been that relevant for a long time. And so it was interesting to see them come back up and uh, also see the connection with Universal. So, hey, you know... Uh, it's not just about nostalgia. You know, there's actually still maybe possibly a path to get more than six listeners. Uh, or, <laughs> yeah. You know, to get, to get sales of uh, 50 albums. So right. uh, rock on and hopefully the Mysterines, uh, you know, uh, keep improving uh, as they go along. Pretty good first effort. Absolutely. All right, Chris. Now, the our, our first parallel vault album ever. Give it to us. Okay, uh, and again, you know, the concept here is that uh, it, you have to scrounge around these days more than ever uh, for the good uh, albums, and it doesn't just apply to uh, this week or last month. Uh, there's plenty of stuff within the last 10 years to go out there and find and catch up on and love. And so here we are, and uh, I've uh, done my digging in my parallel vault, uh, you know, uh, over there, by the way, I'm six foot eight instead of five foot four. And so you know, <laughs> things are, things are kind of cool. 
And I have pulled out uh, from 2014 the album Brill Bruisers by mm. the New Pornographers. So uh, let's get into this and uh, talk a little bit about the New Pornographers in this album. Uh, now, this band was conceived uh, back in the late 1990s as an equivalent to a Western Canada rock and roll super friends. Oh, yeah. They were definitely uh, that. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is when uh, the wonderfully talented songwriters and performers A.C. Newman, Nico Case, and Dan Behar joined forces to create a very, very, very distinctive brand of power pop that diverged quite a bit from their respective solo work. Uh, Nico Case, uh, both then and now, is renowned for her alt-country finesse. Her singing voice has been among the most alluring of the past 25 years or so. Uh, Dan Behar's band Destroyer is known for competent and loose songs uh, tinged with folk and the gentler end of 70s classic rock. Uh, on his own, uh, Behar is the epitome of an expressive yet traditional singer-songwriter. Uh, check out 2000's Thief uh, for Destroyer at their finest. And then there's Newman, who basically eats, sleeps, and shits melody. Yeah. Uh, even his cutting room floor solo stuff is pretty and kind of inspiring. Uh, his early band is uh, Zumpano uh, and is worth investigation. Uh, Newman's most well-known uh, songs as a lone performer are the swinging catchy On the Table from 04 and the more acoustic and more gentle and just as hooky Profits from 09. Now, when these artists get together, they wind up realizing a shared, wholly unique vision. Uh, this has been the case since the, uh, their uh, brilliant debut album, 2000's Mass Romantic. I know you're a huge fan of that album as yes. well, Arturo. I, I still think it's their best album. Yeah, I well, I mean, I I, I think it's uh, between that and their second record, the electric version. But but anyway, so right out of the gate, uh, you know, they come out and you know they tend to start their albums with the title track. And uh, in that case, man, it's like it's like a rabbit punch between the eyes with this wonderful, merrily bopping, intense, taut power pop gem uh, with a really cool vocal from Case, who co-wrote that song with Newman, uh, Mass Romantic, that is. And then between that and other songs like Newman's The Slow Descent into Alcoholism mm. and Case's Letter from an Occupant, are so joyful, so urgent, and so unusually inspiring, they can actually be described as special. Uh, the same held true for the follow-up to that record, 2003's uh, The Electric Version, which I actually like better, uh, just personal taste thing. Uh, if for nothing else, uh, seek this album out for the Newman Gem from Blown Speakers, which is basically one of my favorite songs by anyone ever. Uh, it's a classic tune worthy of a, of a summer joyride in a convertible and yet still manages to be poignant. Uh, the band's trajectory since then hasn't quite been as consistent or canonical, I would say. Uh, notable drop-off uh, for years uh, following the electric version. However, there is one notable exception to this lukewarmness post-2003, and that is 2014's album Brill Bruisers, uh, which... Mm really surprised me and I love. Uh, now, at that point in the band's history, uh, Newman uh, was essentially the dominant creative force uh, driving the new pornographers. It was essentially his band. Now, Behar contributed three songs. Uh, Case only contributes vocals, uh, which still ain't a bad thing again. Uh, regardless, uh, AC Newman is the star here, and boy is he. 
Uh, dude is on point on Brutal Bruisers. Uh, the most stunning thing about the album is its beginning, which, like other uh, uh, albums by this band, uh, starts with the title track. And to me, Brill Bruisers, the song, uh, is kind of on a par uh, and matches the wonder of Mass Romantic, the song. I would, I would make that argument. The uh, song features a pounding, echoing hook that is accompanied by sunny harmony vocals uh, low in the mix that evoke Fleetwood Mac at their finest. And keyboard flashes slinking through the chorus. And then halfway through, we get this bridge where things get sharper, cleaner, leaner, and more gorgeous with uh, a dual uh, vocal uh, back and forth between Newman and Case. And then we ratchet it back up and uh, end with the same echoey uh, hook and those uh those great little uh, buried harmony vocals. Uh, one of the finest three minutes lightning bolts in a bottle uh, of this parallel vault period dating back in the within the past decade and then from there the album just keeps chugging along hook uh, after hook memorable choruses in succession and smart use of those keyboard flourishes and even behar uh, whose new pornographer's output has never really moved me uh, nearly as much as the other two folks uh, is on point here uh, sliding his songs uh, along an electronic 80 spine and an un- unexpectedly orthodox big sing-along uh, chorus. Uh, these songs, uh, m- the best of these is called War on the East Coast. But then uh, Newman punctuates that this show uh, is really his in the lower third. I enjoy the song Dance Hall Domine, which is a hell of a rocker. Uh, I don't think would really be out of place on the electric version. It's got that kind of energy. So ultimately, uh, this album uh, plays like a creation that Newman was just itching to shape, mold, and enjoy while calling in his friends uh, to have some fun. Uh, Final product is raucous, compelling, and yes, fun, fun, fun. Uh, Back in 14, uh, this album was a treat I definitely was not expecting. It's nice to still snack on it once in a while like I did this week. Arturo, any thoughts? Yeah, um, this uh, album, Bill Bruisers, is definitely their comeback record after a series of, in my opinion, really underwhelming albums after Electric Version. Um, To me, I would describe the new pornographers, for those out there who don't know them, I would just meld, okay, I would combine early Wilco plus Lindsey Buckingham era Fleetwood Mac, plus a bit of the Cars, plus REM at their catchiest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah, that you know. that about captures it. And then mm-hmm. like, like like really fun late seventies bands like the Knack too. I mean, there's yeah, a little bit of that energy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know who you know who also really loved this record? Who Our that? favorite critic Robert Criscow. <laughs> <laughs> no fooling. When, so what, what, what did the dean have to say about Brill Bruisers? The dean of, uh, of music journal, or the dean of rock criticism is what he calls himself. Yeah. Quote, so arch and so in your face about it, they remain a case study in obscurity as banality with an attitude problem. Yet the Brill building tease of the title parses all 13 tracks, including the foreshortened Another Drug Deal of the Heart are in-your-face lessons in pop song construction, fetching verse intensified by disarming bridge powered by dynamite chorus. If that's the pattern, uh, they vary. Guitars are extraneous and electronics rule, old-school synths rather than EDM rhythms, but electronics nevertheless. So let it roll over you and find somebody else 
to do your meaning for you, just like they're too arch to suggest in so many words. If it helps, I did find some uh, inspirational verse that applies, kind of. Quote, they say we can't make this stuff up, but what else could we make? A minus. <laughs> yep. Yeah, there you go. Your resonant curmudgeons recently switched our hosting platform to Podbean, and what a move it's proving to be. For the equivalent of nine bucks a month, we get quality, reliable hosting that allows us to distribute the curmudgeon rock report wide and far to all the places where you find all of the other podcasts. We also get to customize a pretty good website. Visit us at curmudgeonrock.podbean.com. And we also receive some excellent statistics that tell us when and how you listen to this here creation. Most importantly, Podbean is its own community of podcasters and opens us and you to some pretty incredible music podcasts besides this incredible one. We urge you to especially check out History in Five Songs with prolific writer Martin Popoff and Song Exploder which expertly guides listeners through the making of a great pop song. Podbean, it ain't bad. So here we are in our time machine back to 1991, which for Arturo and I is a very personal uh, exercise. Uh, Going into the year, we were both uh, 15 years old, and uh, this was really the year where uh, our eyes opened to uh, the possibilities of how rock and roll can be meaningful and shape our lives. Uh, Arturo has uh, also called this historically, this year, historically a demarcation point. I don't think that's arguable. And so let's get into the reasons why uh, this is such uh, an important pivot. Uh, Arturo, blast us off. Well, what better year to start 1991 than the subgenre that defined it? Grunge. (laughs) There you Uh, go. We call this section Territorial Pissings. And it's about the whole Seattle grunge and all the Seattle stuff that came out that year. And two bands and two albums in particular. You don't have to be a genius to figure out which two bands they are. (laughs) Uh, If 1991 is year zero for the fourth golden age of rock, then any discussion of the first year of the fourth golden age of rock has to start in Seattle, the birthplace of the subgenre that defined the decade of the 1990s. And if you're going to discuss Seattle rock in 1991, you have to start with Nirvana and Pearl Jam, the two main heads of the grunge Hydra, whose albums from this year, Nevermind and 10 respectively, altered the face of rock music for the rest of the decade, defined an era and a generation, and established the two bands as the two most important American bands of the 1990s. Now, so much has been written, recorded, and filmed about these two bands, that it's really hard to come up with a fresh take on how (laughs) monumental these two bands, and in particular, these two albums were, not just in how it changed the music industry, how they changed the music industry, but also in how much they affected the attitudes, minds, and souls of legions of rock music fans for, honestly, multiple generations. But hey, the curmudgeon rock report will surely try yeah, uh, <laughs> yes, yes, we will, as always. <laughs> yeah. So before Nirvana and Pearl Jam, you had people who were passionate fans of Guns N' Roses, Metallica, or even Motley Crue. But those bands, I will say, didn't mean as much to their hardcore fans as Nirvana and Pearl Jam meant to their fans. 
the mu- their music hit much deeper and the connection was a lot closer, almost all encompassing. It was if through all the lead guitars, belting vocals, unbelievable melodies and incredible songcraft, Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder were communicating directly to their listeners' hearts and heads and hearts, calling out to all the alienated and disaffected youth, providing language and imagery for all the feelings and thoughts that their young audience couldn't articulate. For those who cared about social justice and women's and gay rights and were tired of the crass misogyny, homophobia, macho, jock, bombast, and overall conservatism that had crept into much of the rock landscape, here were two bands who let you know it was okay to be sensitive toward others and to listen to your left-leaning socio-political conscience. Uh, the only other American band that approached this territory, or the, o- the other two bands beforehand, were R.E.M. and Fugazi. But uh, Nirvana and Pearl Jam had a much more populist appeal. Uh, neither of these two bands went to art school. And hmm. their, lyrics, their lyrics were never purposely difficult or even inscrutable. Uh, you can count this curmudgeon as one of those late period uh, Generation X teenagers whose music-loving life was turned upside down uh, when he heard and saw the Smells Like Teen Spirit video for the first time as a 16-year-old high school junior in his, in his chemistry class. The video, of course, was shown via Miami Beach Senior High's local low-level UHF station that broadcast local school news reports and interspersed popular music videos of the day throughout uh yeah holy holy shit i remember uhf uh whatever happened to uhf man i know for a lot of our younger listeners go go on wikipedia look it up i'm not going to explain it anyway yeah there you go (laughs) at this time my music listening habits consisted largely of 1960s and 70s classic rock you know beatles stones who Hendrix, Zeppelin, early Rush, early Queen, early ACDC, etc. And the little modern rock of the time that I was into was basically U2, R.E.M., and the Black Crows. The latter, while still being a great band, were nevertheless essentially a retro revival 1970s rock band. Um, I became an obsessed Nirvana fan soon afterward, buying as much of their slim catalog as I could their two studio albums at the time and all the singles so I could get the B-sides. Nirvana got me to listen to modern rock radio a little more, but more than that, they opened the door to me to the other Seattle grunge bands that were all popping up at, you know, at the same time, Pearl Jam in particular. Uh, Modern rock radio most definitely caught this change in the rock music landscape most acutely. Uh, Nevermind was released in September, 1991, And from then until Nirvana appeared on Saturday Night Live in January 92, with the exception of Guns N' Roses, you could hear a precipitous decline in how much L.A.-style glam metal was being played on the radio and and MTV as well, until by the spring of that year, it was basically wiped out of radio sans GNR. It was such that after Nevermind replaced Michael Jackson's Dangerous as the number one album in the country, on the Billboard album chart in January 92, glam and hair metal were essentially killed off. And from there, well, after what Nirvana did for me, I went back to listen to all the cool indie and alternative bands that Cobain regularly name-checked in interviews. 
From there, I went even further back into my initial punk rock education, absorbing the Ramones and the Sex Pistols. Like with Bob Dylan and Neil Young, I wouldn't get into the clash full bore until my college years. It's safe to say that Nirvana rearranged my musical DNA in ways that no other band or artist ever has before or since. And even more so than that, they helped initiate a change in the way I looked at the world and felt about things on a sociological and political level. And I know for a fact that I am far, far from the only person in my demographic whom Nirvana uh, affected in that way. Chris, before I go into two important things about Pearl Jam, what say you? Yeah, I mean, my my experience was uh, very similar to yours. Uh, I, I like to say that uh, Nevermind and 10 are uh, those albums that are kind of uh, fall into the vein of where were you when you first heard this? Yeah. Uh, and it's not just for, you know, gawky teens like us, uh, awkward teens like us. It's for, you know, anybody, uh, really. I mean, there's just those albums that just resonate with you immediately. Uh, and, you know, uh, just personally, I'm just looking back on it. Uh, one one comment I'll make, I think that uh, grunge became so exciting and so fresh that it entranced people to the point where any and all things associated with grunge became cool. Yeah. Uh, even, even for people that had no clue about the bands, uh, Seattle or DIY rock identity and culture. And even for those of us who did get it or thought we got it, uh, maybe we got a little carried away too. Uh, sure. I, I, I spent a lot of time obsessing and, uh, uh, loving and, and having emotional reactions to the deep cuts on the Temple of the Dog record and the mm. single soundtrack. Uh, really didn't marry merit that celestially important important status I gave him. So uh, you know, and so that's yeah. just kind of that's just kind of a thing. Which is to say that uh, you know, not everything was uh, created equally uh, during that period. Right. So now let's let's go to Pearl Jam a bit and let's try to get a fresh take on ten. First point. While Nirvana's Nevermind had an immediate impact on both rock radio and MTV, Pearl Jam's debut 10, released in August 91, before Nevermind actually, was a slow burner. Uh, the singles Alive and Even Flow received consistent radio and MTV airplay, but Pearl Jam didn't become ubiquitous until the summer of 92 off of four developments. The enormous success of the soundtrack to the movie Singles, where Pearl Jam are prominently featured, their slow, uh, slow dealing, their, sl- their, their show stealing performances on the 1992 Lollapalooza tour, their scintillating performance on MTV Unplugged, and the huge rock radio success of their immortal power ballad Black. Um, by the time the single Jeremy and its narrative of a troubled teenage boy who kills himself in front of his classmates blew up on radio and MTV, 10 had already started to outsell Nevermind. The second thing to note is something that may be hard for younger generation rock music fans to understand. There was actually a time when Nirvana and Pearl Jam, two bands that history has forever joined at the hip as being the twin leaders of alternative rock revolution, actually divided their fan bases in regard to who was the more quote-unquote authentic band. Yeah, that's Um, true. Among certain sections of music critics and among hipster fans, Nirvana held the edge in authenticity because their sound 
was more rooted in punk and noisy indie rock. Even though Kurt Cobain was an unabashed Beatles maniac who also had little spoken of but plenty written about love for Neil Young, Led Zeppelin, and yes, Queen, (laughs) he was quite open to the music media about the debt he owed to underground favorites such as Sonic Youth, the Pixies, the Meat Puppets, and the Vaselines. Much like how John Lennon would say to anyone who would listen about the Rolling Stones, Cobain dismissed Pearl Jam as grunge coattail riders who were commercial corporate radio rockers in disguise. Uh, Cobain clearly remembered Pearl Jam's past (laughs) as the dreadful, slightly Seattleized glam metal rocker's mother love bone. But for their part, Pearl Jam never disavowed their debt to classic 1960s and 70s rock, which was quite evident in their music. Eddie Vedder adored The Who as much as Cobain adored The Beatles, and they both loved Uncle Neil. (laughs) But a cursory listen to 10 reveals a band whose roots clearly lay in the guitar classicism of Led Zeppelin and Aerosmith, and whose rhythms were slightly indebted to the 1970s funk groove of Sly Stone and George Clinton. Seriously. Uh, um, Of course, all the music on 10 was already written before Vedder joined the band. And by the time of their third album, Vitalogy, Vedder had taken over the main songwriting in the band uh, and brought a more hard-nosed punk and indie ethos. This would show itself even more in the band's refusal in later years to release music videos and and to not play music venues associated with Ticketmaster, stances that were Fugazi-esque in their uh, punk rock puritanism. But those are stories for future installments of this fourth golden age of rock series. Yep, uh, indeed. Just, just remember that Nirvana and Pearl Jam, the twin towers of grunge whose musical shadows still loom large 30 years after their breakthrough albums, were once seen as rivals. And to this effect, even though Cobain and Vedder eventually struck up a casual and respectful friendship, to his dying day, Cobain hated Pearl Jam's music. Yeah, I mean, when we had Ronan Giovanni, the author of a book on Pearl Jam called Not For You, uh, Pearl Jam in the Present Tense on the podcast uh, a few months back, uh, you know, we made this point that there's this um, notion that uh, Nirvana was for the smart folks and Pearl Jam was for the dumb folks. Right. And that's that's kind of how it uh, kind of materialized here, you know, 30 years later. Uh, there's that thought that you know Pearl Jam was the band of the people, uh, but I I kind of oscillated. I'll admit, you know, I love Nevermind. I thought Nevermind was the most transformative record. I thought that that was the better record, but the record that I was obsessed with for two years out of was Ten. I mean, Ten is you know when you're 17, Ten is like yeah. you know the best record of all time because uh, yeah. it it speaks to like a 17 year old. It's got that kind of you know bombast and that kind of let's face it immaturity in some right. spots. Uh, so yeah, I just remember that. And, um, I think that, um, I think the other reason I think, you know, Pearl Jam is again, the band of the people and and let's just put it simply, uh, Nirvana lasted three years and faded with uh, Cobain's suicide and Pearl Jam eventually got happy and became, uh, you know, an arena tour touring staple. So there you go. So we went from some underground sludgy Seattle grunge to the 180 degree opposite, the biggest band in the world at the time. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, there, there was no uh, organic uh, populist movement involved here. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you two uh, were absolutely uh, made man, uh, made men. 
they were kind of the uh, the Billboard uh, uh, rock band uh, of this time. Yeah. But uh, they uh, went through a metamorphosis here that resulted in something very special in 1991. Uh, now, as we proceed here, I just want to make this point. Uh, you may be gleaning uh, that a major theme uh, of these brilliant uh, building blocks of 91 we're discussing on this episode are unified uh, by a palpable sense of time and place. Right. The fourth golden age of rock, after all, is by thesis supposed to have its Forrest Gump style moments of indelibility. Subjectively and objectively, I'd proffer that 1991 is the year for uh, those of us who absorbed the fourth golden age of rock as right. it unfolded are transported uh, back to in mind, soul, spirit, and emotion the most. So I, I, so I just want to make that statement uh, here. Now take this for instance, and now we'll start talking about you too. Now, when uh, the fly U2's first single from the masterful, amazing, untouchable Achtung baby first hit rock radio, my first reaction was uh, what the hell is this? Is that you too? The authors of that perfect anthemic take on the American West called Where the Streets Have No Name? Yeah. Now, the second time I heard the fly, my mouth started to drop a little from what I slowly was realizing was something of a revolutionary song. Next time I heard it, I was mesmerized. Uh, the drum machines beneath the edges soaring disembodied guitar wails, uh, the distorted cold vocals, uh, vocals laid down by Bono, the uh, lyric uh, there about cannibals and thieves singing about their grief uh, and that aggressive pulsing, uh, you know, at instantly recognizable outro. And then came the video, uh, Bono in those bug-eyed shades, uh, the balding edge in a skull gripping hat that he has not removed in the 30 years uh, plus since, <laughs> and the overall effect of darkness and shadows. Indeed, uh, this was a much different uh, U2 or at least a much different presentation. Don't judge the book by its cover, though. Um, more than any album in my mid-teens, I would say that Achtung Baby changed the listen uh, way I listen to music, probably even more than Nirvana and Pearl Jam. Now, they affected my fandom. They affected my enthusiasm. This album was just probably the, uh, the kaleidoscope uh, for me, uh, the portal that really you know, propelled it. And yeah, I mean, so I went back and I read David Frick's 1992 profile of U2 and Rolling Stone. And I remember reading it back then too. And I learned uh, that a confluence of personal and professional crises against a backdrop of a changing Europe, you got to remember that the Berlin Wall had just fallen and we're at the pre-dawn of the European Union and Slavic ethnic, ethnic cleansing. Now that's a hell of a formula for reinvention. On the professional side, uh, U2 had become so popular and so grandiose, they had become fodder for parody and ridicule and derision and an exemplar for self-seriousness and toxic idolatry. Uh, never mind they'd released two classic albums in five years, namely uh, War in 83 and uh, The Joshua Tree in 87, and they had staged some you know, undoubtedly legendary concerts. Uh, the inevitable backlash and the overheating of existing under a warm spotlight had strained band relations and plainly burned them out. Now, on the per then there's the personal side. Uh, Edge, uh, Mr. Evans, was enduring a very ugly divorce and was grieving. 
uh, something that touched uh, Bono as a friend and an artist deeply. And so at the, at the turn of the 90s, the band finally said, fuck it. Uh, essentially, uh, they returned to Europe. Uh, they embraced the electronic and avant-garde elements bubbling up there in the continent, uh, Europe. And they set up Shopley mostly in Berlin, but also for a time Sweden and naturally their native Dublin. Uh, they found the ironic humor of a world and a continent going mad and mixed it with the pathos of turning 30 and getting hit in the mush with real adult feelings. Uh, they worked again with producers Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois, uh, this time on their turf and in their more experimental aesthetic. Eno had heavily influenced and shaped, obviously, uh, David Bowie's Berlin period records a generation earlier. And here, some of that magic mojo uh, was transplanted or, you know, they traveled back uh, into those uh, days in those German studios. And I really got to say it here. I think that uh, a lot of the hypnotic electro rock that was emanating from Manchester in England. Definitely. Uh, had an effect. I mean, do you, I mean, the Happy Mondays crawl in the cracks uh, here and there at times on the record. Yeah, so, they, they, even, they even stole a riff from the Happy Mondays. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Uh, put all of this together, and we get Achtung Baby, the most extraordinary of movingly realized reinventions with the silliest of albums name album names. Coincidentally, it's a reference to one of the more underappreciated jokes in the Mel Brooks film, The Producers. Uh, to me, there's never been another album like it, and there will never be another album like it again. Uh, the themes are rich. Uh, the loss of intimacy born from the rise of technology, uh, most exemplified uh, in the astonishing, even better than the real thing. There's also the confusion and gut punch of lost love and friendship uh, that gets uh, lyric all over the place. There's the desperation to hold on to what's precious uh, the undying longing for reconciliation and the way things were and should be, and the bitterness on the other side of it when that doesn't happen. See until the end of the, uh, the until the end of the world. Now, sonically, uh, the album can be character. I think can be categorized into two mythical buckets: uh, disco tech with Neil Young on guitar, mm -hmm. and uh, a gentler and more exotically arranged balladry and public flaying in real slow to mid-tempo time. The unifying glue uh, between these buckets is Bono's expressiveness that makes you hang on every word, even the dumb ones, uh, as from trying to throw your arms around the world and uh, Zoo Station, uh, which ultimately do not detract from the cry buttons embedded in one uh, so cruel and uh, ultraviolet light my way. Uh, the latter of which has uh, really kind of become my favorite song over the years uh, from this record. Ultimately, you 2 with Achtung Baby embraced the true rock and roll thing of lamenting and celebrating life on the ground. Now, let's end uh, this U this uh, movement and discussion with an excerpt from that Frick Pen profile I mentioned ah, earlier. Nice. And we're going we're gonna to quote from this. Uh, this is Bono uh, riffing the way that, you know, Bono annoyingly does sometimes, but this is great. Quote, rock and roll is ridiculous, Bono states emphatically. It's absurd. He is appropriately, this is Frick now, he is appropriately still wearing his leather and shades. Back to Bono. In the past, U2 was trying to duck that. Now we're wrapping our arms around it and giving it a great big kiss. It's like I say on stage, 
some of this bullshit is pretty cool. Uh, I think it is missing. It's the missing scene from Spinal Tap. Four guys in a police escort asking themselves, should we be enjoying this? The answer is fucking right. It's a trip. It's part of the current rock and roll uh, that just drags you along and you can feed off it. Mock the devil, Bono adds with a conspiratorial smile, and he will flee from thee. In my soul, this album is still mine. Is it yours too, Arturo? Oh, yeah. I mean, I... Joshua Tree is still my number one U2 album, but Octone Baby is a very, very close second. Um, there's very little I can add to what you gave, but I'll give – this is what I am going to add. Uh, you mentioned the Manchester uh, music from the late 80s. That was a huge influence on Octone Baby, and the, and the Edge has gone on record saying it. Another big influence on this record, and the Edge also admitted, was industrial music, particularly oh, no stuff – the stuff done by Skinny Puppy, Ministry, and yes, even Nine Inch Nails. Yes, The Edge was listening to Pretty Hate Machine in 1990. There you um, go. So, so, yeah, and he even admitted it. Like He's name-checked them. So that also, the industrial, uh, it was a big part of that, 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 that panor- I want to say pan- the kaleidoscopic weird sound that Octung Baby had. Um, it was an amalgam of glam rock, disco, funk, and psychedelia with dark-ass weird guitars. And um, it's really hard for people, younger rock music fans nowadays, to really appreciate how jarring a departure this was for you two, uh, hearing this album. And the, the one immediately before it was Rattle and Hum, which is basically Joshua Tree Part 2. Yes. So it was really hard, really hard for people to imagine. It is hard for people to imagine how different this album was. And then the next year, which Chris, you will talk about in the next episode, the 1992 Zoo TV tour, how just jarringly different that presentation of U2 was from basically the pilgrims on the cover of the the Joshua Tree. Um, And also another thing, and I've mentioned this before, um... U2 is a band that people love to hate now and criticize. But what people need to understand, back in the 1980s and the 1990s, U2 were not only the most popular band in the world, they were the biggest band in the world for a reason. They were the closest thing you, Chris, our generation had to a Beatles. Yes. You know, uh, that kind of band that, that were huge all over. They started somewhere and they progressed, and you have er- like the Beatles, you have eras of the Beatles. You have eras of U2. You have the early U2, which was, you know, them, like basically you know, the, the young post-punkers, you know, who were really eager. You had, you know, the, the, the militant political U2 of war and a little bit of the unforgettable fire, which was a transitional period to the Americana U2, the, the, the panoramic Americana U2 of, of the Joshua Tree and Rattle and Um. And then you have this U2, you know, the, the, yep. the, the, this, this mongrel, weird, like I said, amalgam of techno, glam rock, disco, funk, psychedelia, Manchester, industrial, and all like tied together with the edges, inventive guitar playing. And all of a sudden, Bono has an interest in romantic relationships, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, so, there you go. Yeah. So you have that Octung Baby, which that era of U2, which I include their follow-up album, Zeropa from 93 as part of, but we'll talk about that in a later episode. Yeah. So yeah, so you gotta realize how jarring a departure this was for you two and and for and for music fans as well. And also let's not forget there was a time 
when U2 was actually cool. <laughs> there was a yeah, time. Absolutely. <laughs> there was absolutely. a time. And, and they were and, hip and, and, and cool. And this, and this was, was it. it. This yeah, was absolutely this was it. it. Yeah, yeah. I and it was just like you said. I mean, pre-social media, uh, pre-internet, uh, pre-hundred-channel uh, cable. I mean, to go from like you said, the uh, when love comes to town in 1989, yeah, to, to the fly in 91 yeah. is like, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. You know, so yeah, yeah it it definitely uh, speaks to that era. You know, uh, the world moves slower, but 91, I think, is really where things started to pick up, like you said, in terms of emotional connection, but also this meaning, you know, things were changing. And like you said, even the biggest band in the world was changing with it. Now we go from a band who underwent a drastic musical makeover to a band whose makeover wasn't as drastic, but pretty substantial. Nonetheless, the red hot chili peppers went from pioneering funk rockers of the 1980s on the fringe or on the verge of mainstream rock acceptance to towering giants of 1990s alternative rock and a mainstay of modern rock radio for decades to come by this point due to their 1991 breakthrough album, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, a true watershed moment for the band, for rock music in general, and one of the greatest records ever made. Now, while their tenure on EMI records resulted in the innovative fusion of funk, rap, punk, and thrash metal, most notably on 1989's hard-charging and masterful Mother's Milk. Uh, Michael Beinhorn's production on some of those records was a bit muffled and sometimes obscured how powerful a live band they were. It wasn't until they crossed over to Warner Brothers and got together with producer Rick Rubin, known for the Beastie Boys and uh, Run DMC and Slayer, that their sound... Did he produce Run DMC? Rick Rubin? Uh, yes, he did. Yeah. Yes, he did. He, right. Yeah, he, he, he was the Def Jam house producer. So, yeah. Got it. Okay. And it wasn't until they got with Rick Rubin that their sound was brought into crystal clarity while magically being made funkier than ever. Um, Blood Sugar Sex Magic managed to have a refreshing live in the studio feeling to it, while at the same time having a sense of space that allowed the band uh, to experiment with unusual arrangements and challenging guitar sounds thanks to the brilliant work of guitarist John Frusciante. Didn't hurt that the band upped their game with the best, most mature and sophisticated songwriting of their careers up to that point. Uh, with Under the Bridge, singer Anthony Kiedis's searingly emotional account of his drug addiction, the Chili Peppers had their first genuine ballad and a massively huge crossover international pop hit that we all know now. <laughs> um, <laughs> give It Away with its sly appropriation of a Black Sabbath's riff from Sweet Leaf is one of the band's all-time great funk jams, and to this day, one of their signature songs. For a band that had gotten some negative criticism for their dopey sex songs that bordered on misogyny, for example, Catholic Schoolgirls Rule, Party on Your Pussy, Stone Cold Bush, and Sexy Mexican Maid, uh, <laughs> it was refreshing to hear the band tackle romantic relationship songs that either sympathized with the woman's side of things as on the polyrhythmic workout, Breaking the Girl, one of my favorite songs, or delved into the nuances of Love Gone Wrong, uh, as in Anthony Kiedis's failed flirtation with Sinead O'Connor, described in I Could Have Lied. The album was a career maker for the Chili Peppers, and while many bands 
have had career-making albums only to see their popularity wane over time. The amazing thing to me about Blood Sugar Sex Magic is that the Peppers have never stopped being one of the biggest bands in the world after this album hit. Um, so much has happened to them. Frashante left the band due to not being able to handle how big the band had gotten. Dave Navarro replaced him for 1995's underrated and moderately successful One Hot Minute. Frashante rejoined them for the blockbuster albums Californication and Stadium Arcadium in 99 and 2006, respectively. Frashante left again and was replaced by this dude named Josh Klinghoffer for two truly shitty albums, uh, 2011's I'm With You and 2016's The Getaway. Then Klinghoffer left and Frashante came back three years ago. All the while, every single album they've released from Blood Sugar Sex Magic onward has produced number one songs on modern rock radio and Billboard's alternative songs chart. Every single album. Um, We talked about Nirvana's and Pearl Jam's bond with their audience and how deep it went, especially with Pearl Jam and their Grateful Dead-esque following. But maybe we should reconsider how strong the Chili Peppers fan base is to sustain them as a top band 30 plus years after Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Chris? Yeah, I I mean you're right. I mean it 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 there's uh, sustainability uh, has really been kind of um, amazing and it it's hard to understand uh, too because uh yes, I mean they're engaging and uh charismatic characters but uh they haven't really been at least Kiedis and uh, hasn't really been tuned in like he was for a long, long time. Yeah. Anyway, uh, not really much to add uh, to what you said. Uh, I do find it funny, in, in spite of their uh, rising maturity uh, vis-a-vis rom- <laughs> romance and women, that the first single was "Give It Away." Young, young, <laughs> young, young lug chug a lug me. You know. Yeah. And, yeah. and this this album also has Sir Psycho Sexy. Yeah, and so so they, they so they hadn't quite grown up. I mean, look. The Peppers, to me, they're a wonderfully ridiculous band populated with remarkable musicians. Yeah. You know, really, I mean, the the Anthony Kiedis of this era uh, spit out a lot of gibberish and nonsensical rhymes and, you know, sophomoric sex rants. But Flea and John Frusciante, and Frusciante, when he joined the band in 88 or 89, was 19 years old. So this kid is a yeah. prodigy. <clears throat> they had such an incredible stoner chemistry. Uh, both are masters of their instruments. Uh, and of that sort of whatever funk, punk hybrid genre that it was an L.A. Uh, construct, uh, they connected deeply uh, with each other spiritually in their jams. And those jams became the backbone of both the pretty songs and the vicious funkers and rockers. I mean, basically, this whole album comes out of the two of them smoking weed and, uh, <laughs> and just coming up with these those brilliant interactions between what Frashanti's doing and what Flea is doing. Right. Uh, so, uh, one other, uh, I guess kind of funny, and I'm, I'm stealing this from a friend of mine, uh, notice that, uh, in this year you had under the bridge and then you had Nirvana's something in the way, uh, there was something really sexy about being homeless on drugs and living under a bridge, uh, (laughs) in 1991, there must've just been, it was like kind of maybe the cool thing to do before you like, you know, sold a gazillion records and you know, became an icon. So, and yeah, they, they really consummated their superstardom when they headlined the 1992 Lollapalooza tour, which brings us to the first Lollapalooza tour, 
uh, which was in 1991, and uh, this is essentially the Gen X Woodstock. Uh, yeah. You came up with that label, and I kind of agree uh, with that. So Lollapalooza in 1991, uh, this is a paradigm shifter. Arturo, did you know that Lollapalooza is a real word in the real dictionary? What does it mean? I'll tell you, and it certainly is a real word. From the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, uh, Lollapalooza, first entry, one that is extraordinarily impressive. And the second entry uh, is an outstanding example. Uh, the words uh, used states back to the uh, eight, late 1800s and is meant as a slang way of expressing that something is indeed outstanding and nifty. Uh, uh, <laughs> why, why, Clinton? That is indeed a Lollapalooza. <laughs> yes. I mean, that, that's essentially, yeah, that's correct. And uh, here's, here's, here's a very funny uh, thing. On that same page, on, at least on the, uh, the app version, uh, it lists uh, some synonyms. Bees knees. The cat's uh-huh. meow, yeah, Dil- Dilly, Doozy, <laughs> and Jim Dandy, uh, with <laughs> latter being my favorite. Anyway, point is, uh, Jane's addiction frontman probably knew what the hell he was doing when he first came up with that name, and then conceived and executed Lollapalooza in nineteen ninety one. The event, I think it's fair to say, became the first regular, mostly annual, big, large, loud, expansive, zeitgeist American rock and roll touring festival of the modern era. Uh, What had been a staple of the European live music scene for a long time was now on these shores, and boy, was it phenomenal. Uh, By this point in Jane's Addiction's journey as a band, we talked a little bit about this on the last episode, relations uh, between the band's members were at their absolute worst uh, to the point where, uh, to reiterate uh, a line I used in that uh, uh, episode, there there wasn't a band big enough to contain both Farrell and uh, guitarist and professional pretty man David uh, Navarro uh, by then. And so Lollapalooza was originally conceived as a farewell performance or sort of a going away tour by the band. And then it just sort of grew from there because I, I'm assuming that uh, ambition and uh, perhaps a wistfulness uh, tied to the coming separation from such a fertile point on the alternative rock spectrum set in for Farrell. And so Lollapalooza became the outstanding example of a gin dandy tour. And that was born. Yeah. Now, uh, some uh, some history. The the original Lollapalooza uh, tour uh, took place, or it kicked off in that bastion of rock and roll majesty and freedom, Tempe, Arizona, uh-huh. on July eighteenth, nineteen ninety one. It was a twenty five uh, date tour, and the final show uh, took place on August twenty eighth. So we're talking about uh, essentially a forty day tour. Uh, and so from there, uh, you, it basically represents a transformative journey for the mainstreaming of gourmet underground rock of these times, if there ever was one. And moving forward, uh, there was a, uh, this was the beginning of, of a, a movement that changed tastes and style and moods. And also the visibility of liberal politics on cable TV and a whole bunch of other stuff. Now. Here was the inaugural Lollapalooza lineup that accompanied Jane's Addiction on the road. And this is just staggering. Here we go. Ice-T and his metal band Body Count. Violent Femmes. Living Color. Rollins Band. 
Nine Inch Nails, Fishbone, Susie and the Banshees, and the Butthole Surfers. So, uh, how many iconoclasts does it take to change a light bulb? All those fucking people. Yeah. I mean, seriously. So, beyond the masterful blonde viage of Jane's addiction, I mean, seriously, I'm long time ago, I listened to some of the tapes of these shows and they're just amazing. Uh, it may not be an overstatement that Nine Inch Nails' uh, inclusion on the bill was the endorsement of Trent Reznor that led directly to the cult of the album The Downward Spiral three, three years later. Now, this first iteration of Lollapalooza was the crucial one, uh, brimming with mostly under-the-radar, just-rising masters. It wasn't until the next year, we've referenced it a few times, in 1992, that the tour became a launching uh, pad for a new breed of rock stars, including some of the bands we've already talked about and will talk about later in this episode. By 1996, though, the festival had really become a wet fart. And uh, that year, it was... Metallica headlining. Yes, it was headlined by Sellout Metallica and uh, Soundgarden, which was basically intubated and on life support at that point. Now, and then for a number of years, Lollapalooza went defunct. But of course, with branding becoming the oxygen of American business as the 21st century progresses... Lollapalooza has inevitably risen from the dead as a single annual multi-day event held at Grant Park in Chicago. It's also become a big-time moneymaker, something that probably would have repulsed the 1991 version of Feral. Don't know about now. Hey, you know, publishing rights and all. But back then, probably would have repulsed him. Now, according to an article published in the New York Times sometime in the last year or so, the 2019 Lollapalooza Festival grossed more than $247 million over the course of four days. Now, among the headliners, Ariana Grande, Childish Gambino, The Strokes, 21 Pilots, and Tame Impala. Well, you know, at least Tame Impala is pretty good. And yeah, exactly. Yikes. And, yes, I know. And then under these acts uh, laid a roster of more than uh, 100 supporting performers. I mean, basically it was like Coachella Midwest is basically what it's become. So, hey, welcome to the death of meaning. In any case, uh, back there in 1991, Perry Farrell and his mates created something truly special. And as I said before, paradigm shifting on a grand scale that may never happen again, period. Uh, Ever. Dude, what's your take on the gestation of Lollapalooza? I would say Glastonbury Festival yeah. as kind of the Lollapalooza. The original Lollapalooza spirit is still alive and, and, and the Leeds uh, festivals because they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're still pretty counter. They're still pretty counterculture. Um, yeah. Interesting you mentioned Nine Inch Nails. In an interview, Trent Reznor uh, years ago, many, many years ago, Talked about how like uh, Nine Inch Nails, like one of the, they were one of the, uh, um, this, that tour kind of broke them a little bit uh, with the fan, with fans and got them to all, you know, all go by Pretty Hate Machine, the only thing they had out at the time. Um, and Reznor remembers like several fans throughout the tour saying, man, your live band fucking rocks. You guys are intense. Yeah. Then why is it that your album sounds like cheesy synth pop? <laughs> you know, so Reznor said like, Basically, he took that as a cue. Okay, I got to do something different with it. I got to make our recordings sound like our live stuff. Yeah. Um, enter the Broken EP, one of the most intense 
uh, just jarringly heavy and just rocking uh, um, EPs. And my favorite EP of all time, that kind of led to the heavier guitar-driven industrial that Nine Inch Nails would do with the, with the broken EP especially, and of course later the Downward Spiral. Yeah, I mean, this was the Gen X Woodstock. You know, it really was for for generation uh, traveling Woodstock for the Gen X crowd. It wasn't just the bands that were playing. Also, they would have tattoo parlors and tents, yeah. you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, scattered throughout the sites. Yeah. They would have uh, Greenpeace and I think Amnesty International. Yep. They would have tents uh, scattered throughout, sending out uh, pamphlets and uh, and paraphernalia. So it was more than just music. It was a cultural thing, really. Yes, and that raises a point that I should make, that uh, we can blame Perry Farrell for the terminology, the alternative nation. Uh, yeah. He came up with that, and uh, it really didn't go away for about four or five years. But yeah, I mean, but that encompassed all of that, the liberal sort of uh, the uh, save the world uh, causes and, you know, voting rights and abortion rights and uh, all of that. And that sort of um, organically uh, optimistic and liberal um, universe of alternative rock. And uh, it it also one final thought, it also amazes me that you had all of these uh, bands, up and coming bands on that. Uh, bill that not a whole lot of people had heard of in Susie and the Panchees case, maybe they had forgotten about. And then in the midst of it, you have ice tea. Cop killer. Yeah. And so ice tea is like out there touring with all these, you know, like, you know, who the hell knew Gibby Haynes, except for like the hardcore Austin people at that point. Yeah. Pretty good discussion so far, right? Well, here we close out part one of this episode. Kick on over to part two of our deep personal revisitation of 1991, where we'll discuss a long-lost band that invented a brand new genre of rock, and then we'll talk about R.E.M., Metallica, and Guns N' Roses. Send us a missive at curmudgeonrock at gmail in the meantime. Thank you.